Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, December the 30th, 2021. It is currently 2.18 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And I have in front of me my Bible. It's open to Luke chapter 2. Here on my iPad that's still barely holding on, I am still praying and hoping that the new iPad shows up soon because this thing is is about to be over and dead. I, I can't believe it's even functioning in any way, but it's holding on just for a little bit longer. I'm hoping the new iPad d- does arrive. I really do. I, I hate the fact that I had to spend over $700, but I use the iPad for everything related to this podcast. So without it, that's okay. If if you find out that I've been arrested for selling drugs, you understand it was to get an iPad. So therefore, the ends, the 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 ends justify the means, the means justify the, you, you get the idea, right? It, uh, no, that probably, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to sell drugs, but yes, was expensive, but we need it. But in the meantime, all, I, I say all of that because on the iPad in front of me that is still currently barely working, I have the Bible study curriculum available to, that's available to you. I have it currently open and we're going to work through it. But this is one of those situations. I'm sitting here in this empty sanctuary I've got Luke 2 open. I've been sitting here for a few minutes reading 25 to 35, 25 to 35, over and over and over and over and over and over again. And this is one of those situations. Now, remember with the Bible study exercises, remember I I always try to do this to the best of my ability. I'm trying to bring you into the Bible study. I try to throw out lots of just basic principles about Bible study. I just try to make it as real and as organic as I possibly can. Some people don't like it. They want it very well put together, produced. We've talked about this all the time, but that's not my desire. This is supposed to be like, hey, we're sitting down together like good friends talking about well, what we're studying and, and our struggles and our and and what we've figured out and what we haven't figured out. And I, and I do some of it in a teaching way. Some of it I do things where I could kind of just present a problem and I just sometimes leave it because I'm wanting you to then take it up and, and then to work it out and to, and to finish it up. Sometimes you guys catch on. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes like, well, I kind of left that right there and I only got three emails. I wonder, did the rest of the people realize that I left it there for them to fix? Uh, I think sometimes people catch on. Sometimes people don't. But this is all desired to get you involved. So I'm just, I'm going to be a little transparent here. This is one of those situations where, and you've probably experienced this. I don't, again, I don't know how, how you, on a daily basis, I don't know how you handle your Bible study as a Christian. What we've tried to, to develop here for the Bible study exercise, these podcast episodes, we've really kind of developed a system where we're giving you one passage of scripture that you're spending all week on just that one passage of scripture. And I think what we probably have a tendency to do, and and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, this would be, I think we're going to get into some very important philosophical discussions here about Bible study. Here's what I think the average church member does. You can tell me if I'm wrong. 
either one, I'm going to talk about, I'm not going to talk about those who don't engage in normal daily Bible study, but those who typically engage in normal daily Bible study. You may have a devotional, you may have a Bible study guide, and I think you have a tendency to look at the passage, do whatever study you're going to do with it on that day, and you may have a tendency to just immediately move on. Or if you find the text a little difficult, confusing, or quote, you don't feel like you're getting anything from it, You may have a tendency just to move on. And one of the things I've tried to develop here with the Bible study exercise, since I'm giving you one text to spend an entire week on, is you're not supposed just to move on. You're supposed to continue working on it for that entire seven days. That's the goal, right? Because there is a tendency, I think we're like, well, I mean, I've done it before. I'll sit here and I'll I'll like, I'll have a devotional guide, what, wherever I'm getting the passage of scripture from, and I'll start working on it, and maybe I'll get into it, and I'm like, well, I'm not really getting anything from this. I don't really know what to do with this, and then I'll find myself, I've done it a million times, just maybe turning the page in the devotional guide, turning the page, and just moving on to the next thing, and every time I catch myself doing that, I almost have to slap my hands going, what are you doing? When the text gets complicated, when the text gets difficult, when you feel like you're not getting anything from it, that to me is a sign that you really just dig in your heels and say, I'm not moving. I'm staying right here and I'm going to continue to work through this and dig and dig and dig because sometimes that that initial difficulty is really a sign to you that there are very important theological, doctrinal, spiritual treasure buried below, but you're going to have to do the work to get to it. Sometimes that initial difficulty is assigned to you. No, no, don't move on. You're on to something. The fact that it's difficult, the fact that you're struggling with it, it, it may mean that if you do the work, you're really going to come to an understanding of something that a lot of people skip over or ignore. So the, the fact that we're spending one week with a passage of Scripture really, I think, is to tr- is a is designed to combat that, right? We could do a Bible study exercise. You know, I could just go, okay, Luke, two, I mean, you've seen this. How many times have you seen a devotional or even a, a, a sermon that will go Luke 2, 25 to 35, and they cover all, the whole thing in 35 minutes and then just move on? And everybody's like, well, I studied Luke 2, 25 to 35. Did you really? When you spend seven days with a passage, reading and 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 and struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling and struggling, that's when all of a sudden you're like, whoa, you kind of get that breakthrough and go, oh, I think I see now maybe what I was missing. And I'm feeling it today. This, I, I almost felt like, you know what? Don't even turn on the microphone and do a Bible study exercise today. Don't. I've done enough. I've, I've placed it out there. Why, why? I don't. I don't really know what to do now. I, I don't. I'm a little frustrated. I'm. I'm a little. I'm having some difficulty here. Just. Just. I can go do a podcast on something else, and nobody probably would even pay any attention that I didn't do a Bible study exercise. But the minute I realize that, I'm like, wait a minute. This is the perfect time to turn on the microphone just to be open and honest to explain that feeling because I bet you the people listening have experienced the same thing where you're like, ah. I'm not really into this. I'm not really, I've even had some of you email me saying, I didn't really get much out of the Bible study that week. I understand that. That can happen. I, I, but all I'm saying is if you didn't really dig in and if you didn't really put forth the effort, maybe you missed out on what you could have found. 
D- does that make sense? When, whenever you feel that, to me, that is an indicator, stop and dig. It's like, it's like, it's almost like a kind of a metal detector, right? You're walking around, nothing, nothing, nothing. And all of a sudden, beep, 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 beep. Well, for us, that detector is when, man, this is hard. I'm not really sure what to do with this. Wow, the commentaries don't seem to agree. The commentaries don't really offer us any good information. Beep, 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 beep. Stop, stop right there. Dig, dig. Just start, dig in right there, right there. Just, just stay. Don't, don't, don't move another step. Stop right where you are. Now, you may agree with that. You may disagree with that. Everyone has their own little particular uh, kind of philosophies when it comes to Bible study. I just think one week for one passage every day, digging in, even when that feeling is you want to move on, I think it's greatly beneficial. Now, a lot of people don't want to actually do the work of doing Bible study but still, they want to be dogmatic about a passage of Scripture, which drives me crazy. We have to do the work. So are you ready? We're going to go back to Luke 2. Now, I don't know if you heard the sermon last night. 71 minutes on, <laughs> on basically one phrase, right? We basically spent 71 minutes looking at the phrase, the consolation of Israel. And after 71 minutes, after that was over, I discovered there were still disagreements and regards to it. I was shocked to discover that not everyone agreed with me. Okay, now, which is, which is a little frustrating, considering I, I presented a lot of different possibilities. And, and, and I guess what's even more frustrating is I don't even really understand some of the dis, I, I don't know if I even really understand what some of the disagreement, I don't, in some cases, I don't even really know what the disagreements are about because I don't really understand what the perspective that some people ha- who have contacted me are really coming. They, like they haven't really, it's like, it's almost like they're trying to protect a certain theological per- perspective without really engaging with what I, I was trying to do. Like, they, like they have a theology to protect, not really they wanted to engage in Bible study. And you've got, when you engage in Bible study, you're not there to protect your theology. You're not there to prove your theology. You're there to figure out what the text says. Whatever that does to your theology is irrelevant. You don't go in going, oh, I've got to use this to prove my theology, or I've got to defend my theology. No, you don't go in to prove it. You don't go in to defend it. You go in to discover what the text says and then deal with the consequences, whatever they may be, to your theology. Sometimes your theology needs to be blown up. Sometimes it needs to be burned to the ground and you need to start over. But it's just weird sometimes when you'll look at a text and like, what could be controversial about this? But I should have known that this one was going to be controversial. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pull up the curriculum. We're going to do kind of a walkthrough of the adult, uh, not the adult leader's guide. We're going to go through the adult study guide. We're just going to walk through it and see if I can add some more discussion to everything, okay? So it's interesting that the consolation of Israel has become such a, I I don't, I, I just, I don't know what the issue is. I really don't know what the issue is, but we will see what we can discover, all right? So, if you're listening live, if you've had any, I, I just would love to get any, I know this is the last Bible study of 2021, right? This is the last Bible study of 2021. So part of me wishes that it, that it was going to go out like, oh, this was perfect, everything. But, 
Bible study is never always perfect, right? It's, it's, we're dealing with a text. We're struggling. We've got interpretations. We've got disagreements. We've got arguments. We've got controversy. It, I mean, just think about it. What does Christians, think about any subject that Christians agree upon. I mean, really, they disagree about everything almost. So that's just the reality of, of struggling with the text. So hopefully that struggle will make everyone better before it's all said and done. Hopefully you've benefited from it. And hopefully, hopefully you don't look at this text and go, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do any more Bible study exercises because I'm looking for something far more exciting. <laughs> I know, I hope this will show you that this is like telling you, beep, 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 beep. This is where you need to stay because this is giving you the ability to spend one week with one passage of scripture, hopefully for you to grow spiritually and to understand the passage better than when you started. All right, so I'm going to do what I can to bring as much clarif- uh, understanding to this passage as possible in this particular study. Now, remember, we're in session five, the light and glory of God, the adult personal study guide. Remember, the curriculum is available to you. It's absolutely free. If you want access to it right now, it's probably easier just to email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and I'll send you the link. And the reason I say that is because it's on the Theology Central blog, but you're probably going to have to go like three pages down to find, it'll say something like daily discipleship guide, and it'll give you a link. But you can register. It's absolutely free. Remember, it's the reason it's free for you is because others have given money to, to support your access to it. So if you want it, please use it because people are paying for you to have it and we want you to participate. All right. So here we go. Luke 2. First, I'm going to read 25 to 35 because you're supposed to be reading it all week. Here we go. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, that he took him up in his arms, blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, And for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, I would just start today with the idea that when Joseph and Mary hear some of the words that Simeon states in his, we'll call it his prophecy, they marveled at those things. Now, if they marveled at them, we need to try to capture that 
marveling at these words as well. Not bored by them. Not, oh, I've heard them too many times. No, I'm not interested, but we need to be marveled by them. And that that being marveled by them needs to lead us into actually digging in, even if it appears to be, I don't really know what's applicable here. I don't know really what. We've got to, in a sense, double our efforts And maybe we don't feel that marvel, but maybe the more we dig in, then maybe we will be marveled by them, okay? Just just something to consider, right? So let's go through the adult curriculum. Here we go. The light and glory of God. The artwork they have here is on one, it's a journal. It looks like a bullet journal. Yeah, it is a bullet journal. On one side of it is a happy new year. On the other side is a calendar. It says January 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And if you know how to organize a bullet uh, a bullet journal, this is one of the things you do in organizing a bullet journal. Just interesting, it's a, it's a picture of a bullet journal since that's kind of all the rage right now. All right. Then they have, ask a question, what are some things you look forward to in the new year? Now, I'm not a, I know why they ask those kinds of questions because if you're doing a, a small Bible study, then you do this to break the ice, right? So yeah, hey guys, what are some things you're looking forward to in the new year? And then you go around the semi, the circle and everybody's like, oh, this and this. And everybody's like, oh, oh yeah, that, that. And you get everyone talking, hopefully for a good 15 minutes. Then hopefully from that, you can then transition to get everyone's attention back to the text. And then you lead people into the study. It's a way to get everyone talking and everyone participating. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Sometimes to me, it's just a waste of 15 minutes when you could actually be dealing with the text. But maybe that's just grouchy me, um, you know, but that's fine. A lot of people love to do that because they get the opportunity to talk about, instead of talking about scripture, they can talk about the things they want to do in the next coming year, and they're more comfortable with, with that. All right, now, here's the point. According to this, Jesus reveals God's glory and love. Jesus reveals God's glory and love. Now, I got to stop right here. These are the things that bother me. And again, I'm just, I just want you to just consider this. When I read Luke 2, 25 to 35, am I reading something about, oh, Jesus reveals God's love, uh, God's glory and love, or am I dealing about this baby? There's something about this baby and it's more than just what he reveals to me. This has very clear implications maybe to Israel. Now, I know when I say that, see, then immediately the arguments begin, right? Immediately the debates start because as soon as I put the emphasis on like in Matthew 1, that he's going to be, he's going to be called Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. If I say maybe we should restrict that to referring to Israel, immediately there's debate. If I say, well, in Luke 2, 25 to 35, I think the emphasis here is a lot on Israel. Just, just, let me give you the example why I think a lot of the, the focus here is on Israel. Verse 25, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Israel's mentioned once right there, right? Uh, then uh, he goes on to say in verse 32, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. That's the second time Israel is mentioned. Right then, he goes on to say in verse thirty-four, and Simeon blessed him and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel. There's three times, so we have twenty-five to thirty-five, and in those verses, at least three times Israel's mentioned. Now I know in the in the modern day Bible study, 
the focus has to be not about us. So the point is Jesus reveals God's glory and love. See, and so then how do you emphasize this if you're a Bible study teacher or a Sunday school teacher? Hey guys, it's the end of the year and we need to remember that it's Jesus who reveals to us God's glory and God's love. And we need to focus on God's glory and God's love as we go into the new year. So in other words, what you should be most excited about as you look forward to in the new year is once again, God's glory and God's love. Like it it becomes all about us. And I think so many times in preaching and in teaching, we're so preoccupied with how to make the text about us that in many cases, we may actually ignore what the text is actually about. We think it's always about us. It's about us. It's about us. This is a clearly Israel is emphasized three times. Like, is that just a coincidence? One times it's in contrast to the Gentiles. So you're going to say the Israel there is spiritual Israel. I, I think it just begins to fall apart. So, what? What? How does this apply to Israel? I think that that's a, a, a. I think it's a decent question. No matter how much controversy or how irritated people get with me, it, it's like I just I hate you mention that. And then immediately you're accused of being, you know, a fan of left behind or a dispensationalist. You're accused like in derogatory way. Ooh, you're one of those dispensationalists. You're, you, and it's like, how about I'm just trying to figure out the, how about before labeling me or putting me in a camp? How about we just figure out what the text says? Because should we not be worried about being good Bible students before we, I want to be identified as a good Bible student before I'm identified by placing me in a theological camp. I know that may sound crazy. All right, now, now that, so they have the point, then they, they, they give us the passage, Luke 2, 25 to 35, which we've already read. Then the uh, adult personal study guide says, the Bible meets life. Now here, they need to use a illustration to try to make this practical. Which again, sometimes I think sometimes this actually hurts people actually seeing the text. But let's see what they have to say here. One of my favorite parts of Christmas is all the lights. Lights on the trees, lights on the house, Christmas lights throughout the city. My family loves looking at lights and parks and neighborhoods all over our city. Something about lights adds to the celebration of Christmas. But then January arrives and the lights come down. In my part of the country, that leaves us with cold, dreary months of January. It may may be a new year, but we drift back to our old ways and habits. We are reminded that darkness defines the world we live in. We We may have taken down all the Christmas lights, but the light of Christ is not gone. Christ came into the world to be the light we need. Light shines brightest in the darkness and Christ shines brilliantly in our lives, revealing God's glory and love for us. To whatever you may be anticipating in 2022, add this, let the love of God and the light of Christ shine in your life. Now, immediately, I have to say, wait a minute. You just, you just turn this entire thing into somehow this is about us. Like it's already, I hate to say it, it's poisoning the well. It's poisoning the water. It's like, it's already saying here, here's the presupposition. This is somehow about God, God revealing his glory and love to us in Christ. It's about us. When you go into that new year, remember God's light still shines in Christ and you can see his glory and love. 
Even after all the Christmas lights come down. It's very about us, about us, about us. And I just think, well, wait a minute. What about Simeon? What about the people at the time? What about Israel? What, what about them? It's almost like, I, I just, I just, it's such an arrogance to just constantly kick the, the original recipients of these words to the curb and then say, I'm sorry, move out of the way. I'm, I'm cutting in line. This is about me. Now, I'm not saying there's no application to us, but shouldn't we start with the original people first? All right. Then they have the point again, Jesus reveals God's glory and love. And then they have Luke 2, 25 through 27a. And they, and it quotes, they, this is what they quote. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death uh, before he had seen the Lord's Christ and he came by the spirit into the temple. All right. So then they go briefly and I'm not gonna go through all because we've already talked about this. Um, we know little about Simeon. The man, uh, the, man, uh, the man we are introduced to in the passage, but what we know is significant. So they say we know very little about Simeon, this, the man who is introduced here. We know very little about him, but what we do know is very significant. And the first thing they point out is that he is just and devout. He is just and devout. And they say this about him. Simeon is not identified as a priest, a scribe, a Pharisee, or any other type of religious leader. He appears to be just any ordinary Jewish man, but he took his faith and belief in God seriously and lived them out. His love and fear of God were evident. Now, we talked about the possible meaning of just there uh, and devout. We've already covered all of that. I'm not going to go through it again. Um, I think I, you can tell me what you think. Have you, have you been under the perception that Simeon was a priest? I think someone even asked me that last night, and I said he was. I think I may have even said that, and I don't know why I said that now. I'd have to go back. I think, I think there was a discussion after church, and I may have said that. It, is it raw? How, how should we not identify him as being anything? Not a priest, nothing. Do we, do we identify him as a prophet? He does give a prophecy. So in a sense, he... He acts as a prophet, correct? So is it okay to say it's Simeon the prophet or it's just Simeon the man who gives a prophecy? He's not, do, we, do we identify him as a, do, do we just not even try to identify him? All right, fine. Now, here comes the next part. He looked forward to the consolation of Israel. Consolation is tied to the same Greek word for comfort. Isaiah frequently prophesied a time of comfort, renewal, and hope for God's people. Now, let me stop right here. Now, let's be very clear. Isaiah frequently prophesied a time of comfort, renewal, and hope for Israel, right? Like, why, why, why do we just obliterate that fact? Why do we just obliterate that fact? Let, let's just do this, right? Just because I've got to drive this point home. Remember, Israel's mentioned three times. I'm just going to do something really quick. I'm going to go to Isaiah. All right. Uh, I'm going to just do some basic information here, okay? Uh, let's see here. 
I'll just read a little bit here. Okay, I'm going to pull off the cover from this dictionary. All right. I'm just going to go to the structure of the book here in the, in the Bible dictionary. Okay. Um, with its 66 chapters, Isaiah is one of the longest prophetic books of the Old Testament. Most scholars agree that the book falls naturally into two major sections, chapter 1 through 39 and chapters 40 through 66. One good way to remember the grand design of the book is to think of the sections as parallel to the two main parts of the Bible. The first section of Isaiah contains the same number of chapters as the number of books in the Old Testament, 39. The second part of the book parallels the New Testament in the same way, 27 chapters for the 27 books uh, of this section of the Bible. The general theme of the first part of Isaiah's book is God's approaching judgment on the nation of Judah. All right. Now, I'm just going to make sure I, I just point this out, that it's talking about judgment coming upon Judah. Well, let me make it very clear. It's literal Judah and literal judgment that will be carried out in a literal way. Now, you say, well, why are you talking about this? Because remember, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Bible study guide curriculum says, hey, this is the comfort of God's people. They don't, now, I, 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 that clearly they may be referring to Israel, but I just think we have to say, we have got to specify exactly who were those pro- promises of comfort to. The consolation of Israel makes it seem that it's about the comfort of Israel. That, that is mentioned a number of times. I'm just really going to drive this point home, even if it irritates every reformed, and listen, I am very reformed in my theology, but I'm not going to allow being identified as reform to make me do horrible things to the text of Scripture when the text of Scripture clearly handles things in a certain way, all right? So just make sure the first part is about the coming judgment on the nation of Judah. Real nation, real people, real judgment carried out in a literal way. And some of the most striking passages in all the Bible the, the prophet announces that God will punish his people because of their sin, rebellion, and worship of false gods. But this message of stern judgment is mingled with beautiful poems of comfort and promise. Although judgment is surely coming, better days for God's covenant people lie just ahead. This section of Isaiah's book refers several times to the coming Messiah. His name will be called Emmanuel. As a ruler on the throne of David, he will establish an everlasting kingdom. All right, now, now, Again, real judgment, real nation. Let me say this, literal judgment, literal nation, a literal Messiah is literally coming. All literal. I just You can't just, we've got to drive this point home in this study of Luke 2, 25 to 35. The general theme of the first part of, of, of Isaiah's book is God's approaching judgment. All right, we've talked about all of that. Okay, um, Other significant events and prophecies covered in the first section of Isaiah's book include his call as a prophet, God's judgment against the nations surrounding Judah, and a warning to Judah not to seek help through vain alliances with Egypt. All literal nations, literal alliances, literal judgments, literal warnings. I just, I cannot stress this enough. You can't just all of a sudden in this book go, wait, 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 wait. Now this is not literal Israel. This is spiritual Israel. This is the church. You you can't do that. During Isaiah's time, Judah's safety was threatened by the advancing Assyrians, literal Assyrians. When the king of Judah sought protection uh, to protect the nation's interests by forming an alliance with Egypt to turn back the Assyrians, literal alliance, literal Assyrians. 
Isaiah advised the nation to look to their God for deliverance, not to a pagan nation led by an earthly ruler. He also prophesied that the Assyrian army would be turned back uh, by God before it succeeded in overthrowing the nation of Judah. Literally, all of these are literal, 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 literal. The second major section of Isaiah's book, chapters 40 through 66, is filled with prophecies of comfort for the nation of Judah. Just as Isaiah warned of God's approaching judgment in the first part of the book, the 27 concluding chapters were written to comfort God's people in the midst of their suffering after his judgment had fallen. The theme of the entire section may be illustrated with Isaiah's famous hymn of comfort that God directed the prophet to to address to the people. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, the question is, all of these promises of comfort, what do they reference? Do they just simply reference Judah's return from Babylonian captivity or do they promise things that did not, were not fulfilled literally when they were returned from Babylonian captivity? And if they were completely fulfilled, then why is the Jews at the time of Simeon still looking for the consolation of Israel? Remember this idea, looking for the consolation of Israel was a daily prayer by the Jews at this time. Bring a, we want to see the consolation of Israel. We want to see the comfort of Israel. We want to see it. Why were they still looking for it if it already occurred? That clearly indicates they were still thinking that the promise had not yet been fulfilled. Why? Because where are they? They're under Rome. Where are they going to be 70 AD? Destroyed. So when did this comfort that they were looking for come from? If you, if you say this is the comfort for God's people, you almost remove it from Israel. You say, well, this has nothing to do with Israel. This has something to do with, well, us as Christians. But they're looking for the consolation of Israel, not the consolation of just generic term God's people. This is the consolation of Israel that was looking for. Israel is mentioned three times. I, I just, I don't know why that it, this is even controversial. And almost every commentary, commentary points to this as referring, uh, uh, as somehow dealing with passages and Isaiah. Even this says, uh, consolation is tied to the same Greek word for comfort. Isaiah frequently prophesied a time of comfort, renewal, and hope for God's people. And then they make a reference to Isaiah 40, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 51, Isaiah 52, 9, Isaiah 57, 18, and Isaiah 66, 10 through 13. This constellation, the constellation is tied to the arrival of the Messiah who would comfort his people by bringing deliverance. Now, this gets to what were, was Jesus going to come to deliver Israel from their sins? Did he do that? Or was he just coming to make deliverance possible in salvation? Or were they looking for him to come to actually deliver them from their enemies, bring salvation to Israel and restore them and sit upon the throne. Well, none of that occurred in the first coming. So then that gives rise. Well, the second coming, what was the consolation to Israel? What comfort did Jesus bring to Israel considering, you know, from his birth to 70 AD within that around 70 years, 70 less years, 
from the time Jesus is born to 70 AD, what comfort was given? Because in 70 AD, they're completely wiped off the face of the planet for all practical purposes. So you say, well, it was a spiritual comfort. A spiritual comfort of what? Because when we read in Romans 11, that Israel had been blinded, and so they cannot see. So then what comfort, what, what deliverance came to Israel? We said, well, that's not, that's not physical Israel, that's spiritual Israel. Then why, did, why does the text in Luke 2 draw a distinction between Gentiles and Israel? That's clearly a national distinction, a racial distinction. So this comfort, this consolation of Israel, just it raises all of these questions and it's constantly tied over and over and over again to uh, the things referring to Israel. In fact, let's see here. Um, do I have a commentary here that I think points out? Um, okay, that was not helpful. All right, let's go here. Let's see, I've got a lot of commentaries here. Um, okay, here's one. For the consolation of Israel, one of the remnant. One of the remnant, according to the election of grace, mentioned by the apostle, a holy and righteous man who waited for the consolation of Israel, which is the same in sense with the character given of Joseph of Arimathea, Luke 23, 51, that waited for the kingdom of God. Simeon waited for Christ. That is, meant, that is what is meant by the consolation of Israel. For it is very observable that in the prophets ordinarily comforted uh, the people of God amongst the Jews against all their side tidings, they brought with them the prophecies of the coming and kingdom of Christ. Isaiah 66, 13, Jeremiah 31, 13, Zechariah 1, 17. Herein, old Simeon showed the truth of his piety and devotion that he believed and waited for the coming of Christ. He had a true notion of the Messiah promised. He believed that he should come and he waited for his coming. But remember, all of those passages that talk about the coming kingdom, that what was the comfort Israel was that this coming kingdom was going to be the destruction of all of their enemies. They were going to be purged of their sins and Christ was going to, that, that the Messiah was going to rule and reign. That did not happen in the first coming. So was that ultimately fulfilled in the first coming? If you say it wasn't, then you have to look for a future fulfillment of this. All right now I'm going to go back to the Bible study curriculum. I just want you to understand all of the, the issues here. And, and, I, and I don't even know why it's that controversial because most of that's just, you should just be able to clearly see that. All right. So he was just and devout. He looked forward to the consolation of Israel. And then they say he was guided by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit ultimately came to all followers of Christ. But prior to the events in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit only came to select people such as leaders and prophets. For this reason, some people think Simeon may have been a prophet. Well, I think he gave a prophecy, so at least we know that. Uh, one thing the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon was that he would live to see the Messiah, the very consolation and deliverer of Israel he longed for. It was not clear whether Simeon knew he would encounter the Messiah that day when he came to the temple, but as a righteous and devout man, he was, he was obedient to the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit's guidance. For Simeon, a divine appointment was about to take place. In these few verses, we learn enough about Simeon to know he is the kind of person we should view as a pattern for our own life, when we seek to live our lives uh, of righteousness and devotion, looking to Christ and letting him fill us with the Holy Spirit. 
He will become increasingly, we will become increasingly sensitive to the leading and gentle nudgings of his spirit. Now, remember, I, for me, I, no, I, I am to be sensitive to the leading of the word of God that is objective, not some internal feeling that is that God or is that the spirit or is that me? Oh, I'm really sensitive to the spirit, but then you go with that feeling and then it doesn't go the way you thought it was going to go. No, that's subjective spiritual anarchy. You, we are to be sensitive to the leading of God's word. That's that's what we have. We have God's word, right? We have an objective written word we read and study, not some subjective feeling inside of us that we have to determine. Is that my feelings? God's feel what what is no, I don't I don't know. So I, I reject that uh, outright. Okay. They question two, how would you describe Simeon's walk with God? Right, well, we, we, we can talk about that. Now, they go to Luke 2, 27 to 32. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he, he him up in his arms, blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. So this child, what's connected with him is salvation. What is connected with him is light and glory. Salvation, a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Now we know in salvation, remember the term salvation sometimes can refer to eternal salvation from sin, can also refer to temporal or a deliverance from danger, from oppression, from an earthly oppression. So when he says salvation, does Simeon have in mind a spiritual salvation from sin or does he have a salvation or a rescue or a deliverance from Israel's enemies based off some of the passages in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, et cetera, et cetera? That, that's a question we would have to ask. What does he mean that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles? And what does he mean that he's going to be the glory of thy people Israel? Let's see if they offer any answers to any of these questions. They say, key word, Gentiles. A Latin term used by Jews to refer to non-Jews whom they consider to be inferior since they worship many gods and deny the true God. That's all they, they say here. They don't go anything about how he's a light to them, but let, let's just continue. The Jewish law required Mary and Joseph to circumcise Jesus eight days after his birth. 33 days after that, Mary was required to return to the temple when her days of purification were complete. At, this, at that time, she was to bring an offering to the priest at the temple. This is exactly what Mary and Joseph did, Luke 2, 21 to 24. But notice, they also brought Jesus to the temple. Because Jesus was the firstborn son, the law also required them to dedicate him to the Lord and pray and pay the required redemption price. Exodus 34, 19 through 20, and Numbers 3, 4 through 48. Now, that means everything that's happening here is following the law given to Israel, given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And they're following that. When Jesus and his family entered the temple, they encountered Simeon. We read earlier of God's promise that Simeon would encounter the Messiah before he died, Luke 2, 26. That moment was now at hand. We don't know how he knew to approach Mary and, and Joseph, but it's sufficient for us to know that he came by the Spirit. And I got no problem with that. The Bible was not complete at that time. God was revealing himself in many different ways at th that time. 
now that we have completed revelation, he reveals himself to his, to his word and he guides us through his word. But there, there, there's other things going on. Got no problem with that. Um, the meeting in the temple was a highly significant moment for Simeon. When he saw Jesus, he burst into praise. He could die a blessed man because he had seen God's promise fulfilled. Simeon was a servant who lived to further God's purposes. And even now he carried out that purpose as he held the infant Jesus and proclaimed God's salvation. Simeon's praise didn't just point to the Messiah, his words pointing to the Messiah as God's salvation. He knew that he held in his arms the deliverance and he and so many other Jews had longed for. But Jesus would not grow up to be solely a Messiah for the Jews, one who would deliver only the Jews from oppression, uh, Simeon announced that, that he has prepared it before the faces of all people. On the stage of world history, God sent his son, Jesus, to be a light to the Gentiles or to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. Jews and Gentiles alike would benefit from the Messiah. All right. Now, I like that the way they describe that. Jesus was going to have a ministry to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, Here's the question. What was the focus of the ministry to the Gentiles? And what are the aspects of the ministry to the Jews? Is there any distinction? To the Gentiles, it's salvation, right? Because to the Gentiles, there's not promises of land, promises of deliverance from oppressors. There's none of that. There's the promise of salvation that we now, because of the blindness of Israel who is set aside. We are brought in. We are engrafted in. We benefit for salvation. But does that mean that all of those promises of Israel, of land, of deliverance from their oppressors, from a king sitting on the throne, does God still have a ministry of those things to Israel? That's the question. He's a light to the Gentiles. He's lightened the Gentiles. Gentiles are going to be saved. Gentiles are going to believe. Praise God for that. The Jews, the Israel is going to be blinded until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Then it seems that there's got to be promises given to Israel to fulfill all of those promises hinted at in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then when Jesus came at this time, what? Did he do any of those things for Israel? Again, those are things we have to consider. Um, It says, what, uh, and then it says, how has Jesus brought light to your life? Of course, they got to bring it back to us. What an amazing psalm of praise. Salvation has come to all the world. Jesus is the Messiah and the source of salvation to all. Who would believe and trust in him? Jesus would provide a way for people of all nations and kindreds and people in tongues, not just Israel to receive salvation. Well, I agree that not just Israel to receive salvation, but you can't just then say, well, since salvation comes to Jew and Gentile alike, that all of those other specific promises that were to the Jews are just now void and done away with. They, they, do they not still have some ramifications of all of those promises? In fact, let me, I'm going to go back to that commentary. I don't remember which, um, okay, they quote, I'm just going to give you a couple here. They quote, see, Jeremiah 31, 13, just going to see here about the consolation of Israel. Jeremiah 31, 13, all the commentaries offer different verses. 
Um, okay, I'm going to go back here. I'm going to go back to verse uh, 10, uh, Jeremiah 31, 10. All right. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the, from the hand of him that was strong, stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for young and the flock of the herd and their souls shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all. This is a promise that all of the sorrow of Israel is going to be gone. It's going to be completely removed. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And if you go and read everything about this, it's all of these amazing promises to Israel. Now, what most many commentaries do is say, well, see, that has nothing to do with, that's, that's for the church. No, that's for Israel. So he comes he is, he is a comfort of comforter to Israel because that comfort is, is got to happen at some point. But at the same time, he's going to lighten the Gentiles salvation. There's salvation for Israel as well, spiritually speaking. But all of this comfort still has to occur. And if you go through Jeremiah 31, are you going to say that all happened after the Babylonian captivity? It, it doesn't seem to explain it. They have Zechariah here. Also mentioned. Zechariah. I'm not going to read all of these. Okay, give me one second. Here's Zechariah chapter. Um, this is a different Bible I'm holding in my hands. The Bible I usually teach with is, I, for some reason, I picked up this one and I'm having a hard time finding anything. Zechariah 1.17. It says here, uh, See, therefore, verse 16, therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My household shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Sorry, had to cough. Now, if you go through everything promised here in Zechariah, you're going to again see all of these promises and you have to ask yourself, when were they fulfilled? D does this fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity? No, doesn't seem to fit. Okay, well then when is it going to be fulfilled? When is all of this comfort coming to Israel? When is all of this comfort going to happen? When is Israel in a sense going to truly experience that glory that is promised them? They didn't, did they, did they receive that in the first coming? I mean, they were so glorified in the first coming of Christ that by, by 70 AD, they're destroyed. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem to fit. And then they're set aside and they're in darkness right now. It, it just, none of it seems to work unless you say there's multiple things going on here. All right. Um, then they go on to say, um, And then they have this. Luke 2, 33 through 35. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simon, Simeon, blessed them and said unto, unto Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel for a sign which shall be spoken against. 
Yea, a sword shall pierce through their thine own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, I want you to realize this. Hey, he's coming to be a comforter. A com- he's the com- they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles and a glory to Israel. But yet in the very same prophecy, he says that this child is going to be for the rising of again of many in Israel for a son which shall be spoken against. Now, wait a minute. How is he going to be a comfort to them if they're going to fall as a result of him and speak against him? How do you reconcile that? Because they reject him. They crucify him. And for the most part, Israel is still in rejection of the Messiah today. So there has to be some time where all of that's going to change so that they will truly experience the comfort. There's no way to make this all work in the first coming. They go on to say this. Now we again see uh, uh, the word marveled uh, because in verse 33, Luke 2, 33, and Joseph and his, Mary, uh, and, and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Now, we again see the word marveled. Again, notice how frequently scripture mentions the, that people marveled at words and events who are a part of the birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph were aware that their child was uniquely the son of God, but even so, um, but even so, they were struck again by the role and mission their infant son would ultimately carry out. Even as Simeon offered his blessings on the family, he de- delivered a troubling prophecy. Jesus would call the fall of many. Simeon spoke specifically about Israel. Yes, he's been speaking about Israel through his entire prophecy. Not everyone would accept the truth that Jesus is the Messiah long prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures. The apostle Peter later quoted Psalm 118.22 twice to indicate what would happen to those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builder disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at thy word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 8 and Acts 4, 11. So I want you to make it very, I mean, uh, this is very important. Jesus is the consolation of Israel, but what comfort did they get? Because we're going to see that Israel is going to ultimately reject him and turn against him. Some in Israel will believe, many Jews will believe, but for the most part, the Jews so ultimately reject Jesus that the new, the new Christian church is going to be dominated by Gentiles. It's still dominated by Gentiles. But so, so when, when is he going to be the comfort to them? When is he going to deliver them? When is he going to save them? When it, oh, there seems to be a future coming of something to Israel. That's the only way to make this work. Unless you replace Israel with the church. Which then it makes, then I think you're doing absolutely harm to the text of scripture. All right. Uh, Jesus would cause the rise of many. Others in Israel would rise as they embrace Jesus as Messiah. The word rising is the same Greek word used elsewhere to refer to resurrection. Those who trust in the work of Christ, his death and resurrection are freed from their sin and resurrected to a new life. Okay, I don't know if, the, if, if we should say Jesus would cause the resurrection of many. I don't know if we should translate it that way. You, you can work on that and see what you think. Jesus would be a sign that will be opposed. Simeon uh, referred to Jesus as a sign. 
This is likely refers to the prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. How people responded to the sign is a watershed moment. Regardless of the miracles, teachings, and evidence of his deity, many will, will do more than reject Jesus. They will oppose him. That opposition would lead to Jesus' crucifixion and death. Jesus, Simeon's words surely must have hit Mary hard. Up to this moment, the revelations and proclamations about Jesus were all positive. Jesus would be the savior and deliverer of Israel and all the world. But now she heard her son would walk a road that would indicate hardship, rejection, and opposition. No mother wants to hear that about her, her, her child. So far, she had been, seen everything in Jesus' life as coming from the hand of God. It would be a hard road for Jesus, and it would be hard for Mary. Simeon told Mary that a sword shall pierce through thine own soul. Mary would experience great grief and sorrow as she watched her son suffer a horrible death on the cross. All right. And then, uh, well, they go on. You can read the rest of it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to point out a couple of things. Right? Are you ready? Here we go. 25. Behold, there was a man in uh, Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. That's what he's waiting for. He sees the baby and he seems to understand this baby is going to be the one who will bring about this comfort, who will bring about salvation, who will bring about light to the Gentiles, who will be the glory of Israel. But it's going to be the very one that's going to cause the fall of many in Israel and at the same time, the rising of many uh, uh, in Israel, all right? In fact, as he goes on to say, um, he's going to be for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. So, Israel, 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 Israel. Comfort, glory, falling, and rising. All of that's going to play a part in Israel. When you go to the Old Testament, there's all these promises of comfort for Israel. But those promises are always attached to the removal of their oppressors, the purging of their sins, a a king sitting on the throne. Uh, Basically, you got wine and wheat and you got prosperity and everything is wonderful. And Israel never experienced that, not even after coming out of the Babylonian captivity. 70 AD, they're wiped off the face of the earth. 1948, they become another nation. They still haven't experienced all of that. So what can, so what deliverance, what comfort, what salvation could this be referencing? Well, I, I have to point this out because it's the only thing that makes any sense to me. I go to Romans 11, and this is what I read. Romans 11. Well after, written after Luke 2, written after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ, right? So here we go. Romans 2, verse 20, uh, Romans 2, Romans 11, verse 25. Romans 11. In fact, I'm going to look at something real quick. I think this is something. Give me one second here because I don't have it memorized. So I'm going to look this up because I think this is very important. It could be very important. If I can spell Romans correctly. Here we go. Uh, No, I don't want the Roman Empire. I want Romans. All right, here we go. Romans, the epistle. What is the date? All right. Um, Okay. 
This would have been written 56 to 57 AD. So Israel is still around, but obviously 70 AD judgment is is coming and they're going to be in, in, in serious, you know, there's going to be destruction and the temple's going to be no more. It's all going to be gone. So in Romans 11, so 56 AD, this is what we are learning about Israel. Here we go. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So 55, 56 AD, Paul is already referring to a blindness coming upon Israel. Already in 56 AD, hey, blindness has come upon them. He already realizes that Israel is rejecting the Messiah. The, his own fellow countrymen or have rejected him. And he understands that there's a judicial blindness that's come upon them. So they haven't experienced the comfort. They haven't experienced the deliverance. They haven't experienced it. Simeon saw it, knew that this baby was going to bring it. He did never see, see it truly come to pass, right? He did not. And so all Israel, and so listen, so they're going to, a time of blindness in part has, has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. They're going to be blinded until the Gentiles become in. Now, once the Gentiles have come in, and so all Israel shall be saved as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. When is he going to turn ungodliness away from Jacob? When is he going to deliver them? When are they going to get that true comfort? When they are all saved. When will they all be saved? After the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. It has to be future. It if it's if Paul and Roman and 56 AD, all right, if 56 AD, that's 50 something years after Simeon's prophecy. 50 something years after Simeon's prophecy, Paul is writing, hey guys, Israel's blinded right now, but they will be saved. That has to be future. And you can't say, no, that's the church. If it's the church, why is he saying he's speaking of something that's going to happen? Because in the church already, in a sense, been saved because they've already preaching and teaching and calling people to faith and the church has already been formed. It has to be something future. So I think Simeon is prophesying specifically for Israel. He's, he mentions the Gentiles, but this is all about Israel. Hey, Israel, comforter, glory. He's going to cause the rise and fall of many, or the, or the falling and rising of many. I think that's the correct order uh, within Israel. It's all about Israel. I, I don't know how we can just obliterate that. I don't, th- I just don't think we can destroy that. He's come, he, he, he's going to be called Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. I think it's a, a, a more of a direct reference to Israel. Israel rejects, Israel is, is, faces judicial blindness, the Gentiles come in, then all Israel will be saved, and then it will be fulfilled that out of Zion is going to come the deliverer and he's going to turn ungodliness away from Jacob. And I, I think that's got to be future. That's where I'm going to put the emphasis. I know that that's not what I'm supposed to do with Luke 2, 25 to 35. It should just be a nice little devotional, but... Last night, we spent uh, over an hour going through, we looked at every place the word comfort is used in Isaiah. 
So I'm going to stop right there. I know, I know that's going to create even more disagreement, but I just, I just don't know how you can just ignore all of this. I just don't know how you can ignore all of this. So you can work through the study guide yourself. You can see what you think. You can consider what I have said. You can, and I think just don't ignore the fact that Israel is mentioned three times. That can't be a coincidence. That's got to be the focus of his prophecy. The Gentiles mentioned once, but that's easy to understand. He's going to be a light unto the Gentiles. Absolutely. He is going to lighten the Gentiles. There's no question. That's why the Gentiles are going to become the dominant part of the church. The church is going to be predominantly a Gentile church because it's the time of the Gentiles. When that time is over, Israel will be saved. Then all of those promises of comfort they will experience. They didn't experience in the first coming. And I'm not going to then rip those those that prom, those promises out of context, apply it to the church and say, Israel, I'm sorry, you don't get anything. You can let me know what you, know, you, you think. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I know a lot of eschatology related issues that are very complicated. But, I mean, that it's the text that's driving it. It's not just a desire to talk about eschatology. It's the text driving it. So, there you have it. All right, I'm going to stop right there. Um, wow, it's 3.23. Wow, it got late quick. All right, I think I'm going to go home. Everyone have a great day. Can't wait to hear what you have to say. Remember, this is the last week of Bible study for 2021. Do not waste it. Do not waste it. Okay, Finish strong, all right? And then we'll we'll be introducing next week's study soon. We'll be doing that. All right, I got to get home. Everyone have a great day. Can't wait to hear from you. God bless.